0: We'll open your Bibles this morning uh, back to the book of Romans. Romans, we're taking a brief pause from our study in the Gospel of Luke on this Reformation Sunday to look at the heart of the Reformation and why it is such an historic event and importance for the church as we know it today. And I want us to take us to... Uh, Romans chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 26 together. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 26, as we look at the heart of the Reformation. The heart of the Reformation. The Bible says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as I have already noted, today is the anniversary Sunday of the Protestant Reformation. As a church, we are joining this morning millions of other believers around the world in celebrating the gospel movement that took place in 1517 when Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Anytime we talk about the history of the church, my mind always goes to the promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Jesus said, while standing in Caesarea Philippi in front of what was known as the gates of hell, a place where human sacrifices were made to false gods, Standing in front of that place, Jesus declared, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is a promise by Jesus to both build and preserve his church, as he has done throughout all of history Unto this very day. And it's vital that we acknowledge this because history shows us that many attacks have come against Christ's church since he began it with his disciples. The first major attack that came against the first century church as Christ ascended into heaven was persecution. It was then followed by attacks of division and then corruption. And then we move even into the darkness of the Middle Ages. Yet in all of that, and rather should I say through all of that, Christ has kept the heartbeat of his true church alive. He has used his servants just like he did in Israel's history to revive and awaken and reform the life of his church just as he launched it. And of course, the Protestant Reformation is one of those movements. It's one of those awakenings, revivals, reformations. It's, in fact, probably the most notable gospel movement in history that has had an immense impact today on the identity of Christ's true church. I want to give you just a brief summary of this historical movement. But to dive into it in detail, I would have to revert you back to a series that I actually preached last year. We took three or four Sundays in talking about, as Protestant evangelical Christians, why we're not Catholic. And you, you can find that online at our church website or our YouTube page, and you can go back and study through that and get a more in-depth. But this morning, I, I just want to give you a summary of that historical movement. It begins with one of the key figures of the Reformation. He was a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. Now, you manly men, don't, uh, don't try to take away my card, but I enjoy collecting dolls. Let me clarify. <laughs> Bobblehead dolls. Is that better? No? Okay. Okay. Well, someone bought me years ago a bobblehead doll of Martin Luther. It sits on my bookshelf in my office. He's am holding a hander, hammer in his hand, and he kind of overlooks my study right there beside of Charles Spurgeon, week after week after week. Martin Luther is his name. D- despite his religious zeal, Luther was plagued himself by a deep sense that he was not right with God. He desperately, even as a religious monk in the church, he he desperately struggled with peace whether or not God had truly forgiven him of sin. He carried with him a, a great deal of anxiety about whether or not he had done enough to merit God's grace in his life. Of course, the fact that he even thought grace could be earned, that grace could be merited, was the underlining cause of all of Luther's emotional struggles. So where was that coming from? If a man of his caliber with so much religious zeal, why was he thinking that he had to earn God's grace? Well, the church in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries became greatly impacted by politics so impacted that Christianity early on was named the official state religion. And what do you get when you mix religion with politics? You get politics. Heads of state became heads of the church. And this, of course, caused the church to dramatically drift from biblical orthodoxy. Not only did they begin to emphasize works of merit in order to be forgiven, but they reversed the whole authority teaching of Scripture. In other words, instead of the Bible being the authority over the church, they reversed it to make the church, specifically her leaders and the heads of state, as the authority over the Bible. Now, let me just say, whether it's happening in the Sixth century or the 21st century, anytime that happens, anytime the Bible is belittled as an authority in life, an array of issues will begin to develop. And one, and I mentioned just one because there were many, one of those issues during that time was the selling of indulgences practice that in the Catholic Church continues today. But it was really bad back then. The Pope had hired a man by the name of John Tetzel. He was known as a fundraiser and a marketer. His job was to raise money for the church and he did this through the means of selling indulgences. You as a sinner would purchase these indulgences from the church in order to secure your forgiveness of sin. That they would sell them to anyone and everyone who would buy them with the promise that even your time in purgatory would be shortened if you purchased some indulgences. You could even purchase indulgences for loved ones who might already be in purgatory. These indulgences were little pieces of paper that had the stamp and seal of the Pope on them. It was an official thing. And so, as you can imagine, there were a lot of different responses to it. Some would go and buy these indulgences, and now that they had secured forgiveness and shortened purgatory, they would just live it up because we bought our forgiveness. We purchased our grace. And then they would play on the emotions of the people. Can you imagine during a time in life where you weren't even allowed to read the Bible because it wasn't in a language that you could understand because the church had placed themselves as the authority over the Bible, so they're trying to teach you things that you can't study for yourself? And then they play on your emotions, trying to convince you that your deceased mother or your deceased child who's in purgatory being burned by fire right now, that if you would just give some money give some money to the church and purchase these indulgences, then you could save your loved one from punishment? Now, how bad would we feel if that was a reality and we didn't give? John Tetzel was good at what he did. And he really played on the emotions of the people. In fact, he had mottos that he would use as any marketer would. One of his mottos was this, as soon as the gold in the bucket rings, a soul from purgatory to heaven springs. And this, the selling of indulgences, along with a host of other heresies, began to permeate the church during the medieval period. This infuriated Luther. And it sent him on a journey for truth. These, these unscriptural teachings that the church was emphasizing, it ate at the very core of his soul. So Luther began a deep dive into the scriptures. He, he went away and he began to study intensely books like Romans and Galatians and Hebrews were his top three favorites. And while studying them there, he discovered something that he had not seen before, perceived before. It's those moments in life when the light comes on, if you will. We even call this, theologically speaking, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. The light comes on for Luther. And what he discovered by studying these books was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That... Righteousness is not earned by our merit, but is freely given by God's grace through faith. And when God's grace is given to us through faith, he discovered it is then that God justifies us and makes us right with him. Romans 1.17, we read it a moment ago, was one of the hallmark verses that arrested Luther's anxious soul. It brought him peace. Because in it, he learned that the righteous live by faith. Those who are righteous do not earn God's favor through merit and works. No, those who are righteous are righteous because they have put their faith in Christ's work. Luther said this, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. And it was here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. So on October the 31st, in 1517, Luther wrote a series of 95 propositions. They've become known as 95 theses, not reses. Theses. They are indictments, or were indictments, as a protest against the errors and abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And then Luther took those 95 indictments, those 95 propositions, and he nailed them to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg, Germany. A spark was lit that moment. Fire began to spread throughout all of Europe. It would become known as the Protestant Reformation. That's why we refer to ourselves as Protestant Christians. Protestant, the word protest, because we protested against the heresies of the dominant church. The Protestant Reformation took place. Fire began to spread. John Knox in Scotland, Zwingli in Switzerland, Latimer and Ridley in England. Calvin in Geneva, they all began to preach justification by faith alone, salvation by faith alone. Another reformer at that time, William Tyndall, he began to translate the Bible into English, which was a no-no to the Catholic Church at that time. He translated the Bible into English so that common people could read and know the Scripture for themselves instead of depending upon the official language of the church, which was Latin, a language that they could not know and did not understand. It was even said during that time of William Tyndall's translation and publication and the miracle of the printing press, the Scripture was going all over the place like never before. And one of the bishops in the Catholic Church told his fellow priests this, and I quote, the lay people now know the Scriptures better than many of us. So as you might conclude, Luther had a lot of pressure put on him. In fact, he was urged to recant his statements or risk being burned at the stake. So they held a council among churches and church leaders. It's called the Diet of Worms. I don't know why. It's very weird. They did not get together and eat worms before they had this meeting. Worms was the place. Diet means council. It would be like saying the Council of Charlotte, the Diet of Worms. And all these church leaders got together and they stood Luther in the middle of it, begging him to recant, begging him to back off of his propositions, his statements, his preaching, what was now moving on as a fire around Europe, or risk being burned to the stake. And here's how Luther responded. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures and by clear reason. For I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I, Luther said, am bound by the Scriptures that I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Luther goes on to say, I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience and Scripture. And then he says, here I stand on the Word of God. Here I stand on Scripture. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther for a period of time then went into hiding. But at that point, the fire had already spread. God was using men to reform the church, recover the gospel, and fuel a biblical Protestant Christianity. You see, what we learn here at the very foundational level is that the Reformation was a gospel movement fueled by Scripture. Any personal Reformation or church revival or national awakening, it will always be fueled at the foundation of it by the Scriptures, and that's what happened. And today, we the church are benefactors of it. You see, the the question of Luther and the Reformers and the continued question today is this. How does a person get right with God? That was the question. How does a person get right with God? And the answer to that question is what distinguishes Protestant Christianity from Catholicism. The answer to that question is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from all other religions. The answer to that question is what distinguishes the true gospel from a false gospel. And let me remind all of us this morning, it's not just a question of the past. It is the most important question today. How does a person get right with God? How do I get right with God? How do you get right with God? How do we become righteous? Well, this was the heart of the Protestant Reformation. It's the heart of Scripture. And it must remain at the heart of every generation of Christians who desire the church to remain committed to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a Latin phrase called "simper reformanda. Semper reformanding. It means always reforming, always reforming, always reforming. Why are we always reforming? Because Satan is always attacking. Whether it is the indulgences and papacy of the 16th century or the legalism and wokeness of the 21st century, Satan will always attack the purity of the gospel. And how does he do that? He does it by taking away from the gospel or adding to the gospel. But we must... Always be reforming. That means we must always be standing. We must always be contending. And today the church must echo the same conviction of Luther. Here we stand. We will do no other. Salvation from sin is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and it is for the glory of God alone. And that brings us to the heart of the Reformation. That's a historical summary, but let's, let's go to chapter 3 of Romans. Because here in Scripture, we see what is the heart of the Reformation. In fact, these verses have been called by a long pastor of years ago, Barnhouse, 10th Presbyterian Church, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He said in his notes and commentaries on this passage that these are the most important in the Bible because it answers the question, how does a person become righteous? How does a person become right with God? Three things I want you to jot down. Number one, righteousness required. Righteousness required. Righteousness required. Verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. You know what that means? That means that all people everywhere are accountable to the righteousness of God's law. In fact, that's precisely what he goes on to say in verse 19. The whole world is accountable to God. The whole world is accountable to God. One day, we will all stand before him. Hebrews 9:27 says, man has one appointment to die. And after that comes the judgment. After that comes the judgment. We will all be held accountable to God. We will all stand before him. And we will be held accountable to God on account of his perfect righteousness as expressed in his law. So that's what it means when he says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Well, who's under the law? We're all under the law. We're all under the law. And the law is the expression of God's character of perfect righteousness. Righteousness. And it is to that we are held accountable. Now here's the problem. That's not only a high standard, it's an unattainable standard. Verse 10 of this same chapter says, "None are righteous, no, not one. None are righteous. In fact, not only are we not righteousness, or not righteous, he goes on in chapter 1 to say that we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. This is the gravity of our situation. We were born this way. Born sinners. Depravity has brought death to our spiritual soul. And not only are we not righteous, but we are filled with all Kinds of unrighteousness. Envy, murder. I'm reading this from chapter 1, verse 29. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, hate, disrespect, pride, arrogance, rebellion, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. It's not for us to perfectly keep the righteousness of the law it's not possible back here in chapter 3 in verse 23 he declares that all of us have sinned and fall short fall short of what perfection the glory of God's righteousness None of us, none of us, no matter how hard we try, how many new leaves we turn over, how religious we get, there is not a person who has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ who can be perfectly righteous. And yet, God still requires that from us. Even though it's impossible, He still requires from you and me complete and perfect righteousness in order to be right with Him. You see, we can't see the light until we recognize just how desperately dark it is. And in this passage, we see both the gravity of our situation and our inability to fix it. The next verse makes it clear, unless it's not already clear for us. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being. Let me stop right here. Look, How many of you are human beings? Would you raise your hand? I know we're on the verge of some pretty interesting technology, but I think all of us are human beings. I don't think there are any droids among us. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, the word justified is important. In Christian doctrine, it's a court term describing a person who's been made and declared legally righteous. A person who's been declared perfect. And we are clearly told that it's impossible for any human being to be justified, to become perfect by keeping the works of the law. That's what he's saying in verse 20. There is nothing you can do in terms of merit and earning and good favor that will make you righteous. So again, this is a problem, isn't it? And it's not a small one. It's a big one. Not only are we filled with all manner of unrighteousness, but we have no ability to do anything about it. Yet again, that perfect righteousness is still required in order to be made right with God. So what shall we do? What can we do? Well, the medieval church in the 4th, 5th, and 6th century, largely prior to the Reformation, said you... You just got to do your best. I mean, you, 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 you got to believe that Jesus came, but you got to understand, you got to take the first step back to him. That's what they said. You got to work hard. You got you to do good works. You got to go to mass. You got to do all this kind of stuff. You got you to gotta merit the righteousness of God, and even at that, hope that it's been good enough. But the reformers concluded, that's not what this says. So who's going to be our authority? The scriptures? Or at that time, the predominant voices of the church. Righteousness required. Right now number two, righteousness revealed. Righteousness revealed. Now, verse 21, it's a transitional verse to what we've heard in the bad news of verse 19 and 20. And notice the first two words of it, but now, but now. In other words, righteousness is required to be right with God, and you and I can't do anything about that. But now. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Again, it's not earning grace by keeping the law. No one can perfectly do that. We've established that. But his righteousness is, in fact, revealed in the law. The first five books of the Old Testament. He also goes on to say here in verse 21 that it's revealed in the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, all of scripture testifies to, and reveals how a person becomes righteous. And it's revealed in one object. Verse 22, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Not in communion. Not in... In good works, not in baptism, not in indulgences, not in rosary beads, not in church membership. Righteousness is revealed in Christ Jesus. Friend, listen to me this morning. There is only one who possesses God's perfect righteousness. First John chapter 3 tells us in him in Jesus there is no not a zilch none there is no sin no sin Jesus Christ is God's provision of perfect righteousness and it's in his gospel and in his gospel alone that guilty sinners like you and I can be made perfectly righteous Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and they are justified. That is, they are made righteous. They are made righteous by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood encompassing the fact that sin must be paid for. God's perfect righteousness demands that no one can come in to God's presence who possesses sin. No one. And in order for sin to be removed, now catch this, listen, this is how salvation works. In order for sin to be removed and perfect righteousness imputed, then the one who is perfectly innocent must die in the place of those who are entirely guilty. That's the gospel. You've got to understand this. Whether you choose to believe this or not, that's on you. And you will one day stand before God for that. I am doing my part to tell you the truth. And the truth is, in order for your sin to be removed and Christ's perfect righteousness to be imputed in sin's place, then the one who is perfectly innocent must die in the place of those who are entirely guilty. So... God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world. No, the law is already condemned, it, but that through the perfect righteousness of his son Jesus, the world, that is, you might be saved. What we cannot do, God says, you know what? I'll provide a way for them. I'll do it in their place. And that's righteousness revealed. Righteousness revealed. It is revealed in Christ alone. Not in Christ and some of what I do. No, 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 no. If you are trusting in Christ and in some of what you do, you are not imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. It is entirely and completely trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, knowing that I could never do enough. My righteousness, Isaiah says, is like dirty, filthy garments compared to the perfectness of Jesus. But thanks be to God that although he still requires it, when I can never achieve it, he revealed it through his perfect son, Jesus. That's called hope. That's called grace. That's called salvation. And let me give you this final one, righteousness received. Righteousness received, righteousness required, righteousness revealed, righteousness received. So think about this, because perhaps maybe you're asking that question. If righteousness is required, and it's revealed only in Jesus, then perhaps you're wondering this morning, is there any possibility for us to even receive that from him? Because that's the only way, right? We've, we've established that. The only way it's possible for any of us to even be righteous is if he gives that to us. He has to give it to us. Is that possible that Jesus would give it to me? And if it is possible, how do I receive it? Well, friends, this is the good news of the gospel. You can receive the righteousness of Jesus. Thereby making you legally right with God, justified, and here's how you do it, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is received through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Verse 24, we are justified, we are made right with God by His grace as a gift, a free gift. Verse 25, the salvation of Christ's righteousness is received by faith, by faith. This is what Luther discovered, and it was this message of the gospel that reformed the church put it back on the right track. It's the same message that we must always keep on the right track. And that message is righteousness is not achieved by human merit. It is received as a gift of grace through faith in the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the good news is, when a guilty sinner, of which we are all, puts his or her faith in Christ alone, that something miraculous happens. Luther called it the sweet exchange. God justifies us by taking away. This is what justification looks like. God justifies us by taking away our unrighteousness, and he replaces it with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Now, I'm still held accountable to God. And I still sin. Every day, I still, even though I trust Jesus, fall short of the standard of his perfect righteousness. But because when I was a little child, I began to trust in the righteousness of Jesus when I could not fulfill it on my own. Jesus took away all my sins, past, present, and future. He put over me the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And now, when I stand before God and am held accountable to Him on the basis of His perfection, I know I can stand before Him peacefully, clothed not in my unrighteousness. But clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So that when God sees me, he sees Jesus. When God sees you, does he see Jesus? Because that is the only way to escape his judgment. Christ has already paid for our sins. He has made a way. He has completed the sentence on our behalf and now he stands boldly in the courtroom of God's judgment and says, I will pay the price. I have taken their place. The question is, are you going to let him do that for you? 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and that cannot happen by our efforts of merit. And we close with verse 26, which I think is a wonderful verse just to theologically chew on a little while today. God in his justice provided a way for sinners to be justified. He did so by sending his son Jesus and requiring us to put faith in him. So verse 26 says, God is just. God is just. That means what his righteousness demanded, he still justly required. He would not be just if he simply pretended that we did not defy his law. But in his justice, he still demanded righteousness. And then he justifies us. Look at that next phrase. He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Tim Keller said it like this, much better than I could, so just quote him. The wonder of the cross, Keller said, is that in the very same stroke, it satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God. At the very same moment, it shows us that God is both the judge who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them. And he is the justifier who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us to him how does a person get right with god faith in jesus that's why the reformation is so important to our history as followers of the true gospel For from it, we are reminded through this massive gospel revival that grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and the glory of God alone is the heartbeat of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are made right with God by faith in Jesus, not by works of merit. So the only way for us to close is by asking the question, are you right with God? Are you righteous? Are you? Well, I pray today. that you will put your faith and your faith alone in Jesus Christ, the righteous one who took your place. Let's bow our heads together.